Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition, a delicious range of sumptuously smooth dark chocolate. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. Now, it's a Sunday. We normally upload on a Monday, but today, as you know, is International Women's Day. And to celebrate, we're bringing you a very special live episode, which we recorded earlier this week as part of Accenture's International Women's Day celebrations. We were delighted to be asked back to the Convention Centre by Accenture Ireland to host the podcast in front of nearly 2,000 people. Big audience and a very good audience too. This year, our panel discussion was themed People Like Us. And we were looking at ways that various people use their voices and their life experiences to make a positive impact on society. Joining Cathy Sheridan on stage was Senator Lynn Ruan, Izzy Keane, the creator of Izzy Wheels, spoken word artist Sasha Turfus and CEO of the IDA Ireland, Martin Shannon. I think you're going to enjoy this discussion. And of course, happy International Women's Day to all our women's podcast listeners. You're all brilliant and I hope you have a lovely day planned. I am so delighted to be back here again this year. I had the best fun of my life at this event last year and actually so did my panellists. And this year, I think Accenture have done it again. Uh, It's a very different vibe for me this year. We have a very different group of panellists, but I think every one of them is amazing in one way or another. Um, I am here representing the Irish Times. We're recording an episode, a live episode of the Irish Times Women's Podcast celebrating International Women's Day 2020. And for the next half hour or so, we're going to be getting very personal and political because, as you know, the personal and political are perhaps now more than ever deeply intertwined. First, I want to wish you all a very happy International Women's Day. It's actually on Sunday, as I'm sure you know. Uh, But it sort of went on for a day for a few years, and then it went on for a few days. And now I think the fact that it's on a Sunday has allowed everybody to say, oh, hell, let it go on for a month. Which which it kind of is. I know somebody who has an event on March the 27th. Um, But there's a lot to celebrate and to discuss when it comes to women and equality. The title for our panel discussion actually broadens that to people like us. And we have four people here who in various ways have used these personal experiences to make lives better for others. That is what is important about this particular session. We've seen the power of the personal story most recently in the two high-profile referendums for same-sex marriage and abortion rights. And when voters were asked what influenced them to vote to remove the Eighth Amendment from the Constitution, for example, the experiences of women was used by very many people. They listened. They heard other people's experiences, often told at great cost and personal courage. But people listened. Uh, I was also struck in recent weeks by the very powerful essay by a writer called Gavin McRae, who wrote in the Irish Times about a vicious homophobic attack on him. And 
it kind of exposed the fact that we can never, ever relapse into complacency about these issues. So we'll be talking about this and about the benefit of courageously speaking up and the positive change that that can bring in society. But we'll also be talking about the individual cost of that. And because behind every story there's a woman or man exposing their most intimate or vulnerable selves for a greater cause, here we have four guests today. And I'm going to begin with the man beside me. It's man on the women's podcast, which I'm <laughs> delighted about. Martin Shanahan is an Irish businessman and public servant. He's the CEO of IDA Ireland, which is really at the heart of us bringing inward investment into this country and therefore very important to us. And it's a role he's held since 2014. He's also a gay man, which he thinks should be utterly unremarkable, mm -hmm. but it's not. And that's why Martin is here to tell us his story. Senator Lynn Rowan over here at the far side is an independent senator and activist currently seeking re-election. I'm not advocating anything here. Uh, she was the president of Trinity College Dublin Students' Union from 2015 to 2016. But what is striking about Lynn's story is that Lynn was a single parent at the age of 15 and left school at that age. And look at her now. Um, Izzy Keane, in this spectacular wheelchair, was born at Spina Bifida and uses a wheelchair. She's not confined to a wheelchair. She's not bound to a wheelchair. She regards it as a liberator. And together with her sister Alva, she formed the company Izzy Wheels, which designs those funky wheelchair covers. And as a wheelchair user, you get used to feeling sorry for you, she said. But actually, she is probably one of the most positive people I've ever met. And... Lastly, but not leastly, Sasha Turfus is a proud gay woman of colour, spoken word artist who knows what it means to be an outsider in the purest sense. She has appeared at Electric Picnic altogether now and with the RTE Concert Orchestra. And those of you who have been here all morning will have seen her earlier doing her very powerful thing. So I'm delighted to have you all here, and we've only 26 minutes, I'd say, of which about half has gone already. Uh, so, Lynn, I'm going to start with you, because okay. in a way you inspired our conversation today, because you wrote a book called People Like Me. Now, why did you call the book that? And can tell us a little bit about why, how you've used your personal experiences okay. for the greater good. Well, I called the book that because over a period of time since I've been in the public eye, I heard the phrase, a lot people like you. And a lot of the time that came with a negative second half of that sentence, sometimes positive. So sometimes people would say, we need more people like you. And that's obviously a brilliant phrase and recognizing diversity and intersectionality. But a lot of people would send me letters or very personally say to me, but sure, people like you want everything for free. And people like you don't even want to work. People like you don't want to pay tax. You know, it was constantly this phrase was coming at me and I thought, well, that's obviously completely untrue. But I wanted to write a book that was saying, people like me, this is who I am. And we're actually the, the hardest working people you'll have to be because the, the obstacles that are in our way to be able to achieve, to be able to succeed, to be able to be heard, um, is tiring, first of all, to pursue that. And, I, you know, if, if everybody had to endure... The, the environments that we endure to try and succeed, they would understand that nothing comes free to any of us, you know, and... Now, Lynn, tell us a bit about how most people have seen that as the ultimate trap. 15, yes. no education yes. and a baby. How did you break out of that? 
Um, well, for me, it's not about breaking out of that because it's something then you're looking to escape. So I embraced that. I embraced that I was 15. It wasn't ideal. I was a mother. Um, I had a very supportive family. Um, we often talk about equality of opportunity, which is kind of a false thing. So for me, the idea is that we have to have equality of environment. So for me, our environment was the biggest factor that was probably in my way. But within my household, I had quite a supportive household. My mom taught me how to read at when I was two. So I was an avid reader from a very, very young age and she bought me a book a week. And I believe that it was her instilling that in me at such a young age that allowed me not to be afraid to seek out and research and read up on the things that I needed to. Because sometimes in our communities, even to be able to go on to university, it's quite frightening to read the information on websites and applications and all of that. And we can sometimes open it and then just completely shut down to it. But I think... For me to succeed, I had an ability to be able to engage with information. And I think that my mother instilled that love of reading in me. And I think that stood to me um, throughout my, I suppose, ambition to be able to succeed. I was also born with an sense of injustice, my dad would say. He said I was a righteous little... Mm. <laughs> um, I thought I was right about everything and I suppose sometimes that was seen as a negative thing growing up or she thinks she knows everything <laughs> but I think that also I used that to my strength as well because I wouldn't believe anybody when they told me I couldn't do something or that I wasn't equipped to do something or I wasn't talented enough to do something I think that small sense of narcissism that was inside me was like I am rapping at all of this <laughs> you know Um <laughs> so but the thing is it shouldn't our successes and us being able to flourish within our community shouldn't be down to particular traits you know so you can't have you know there's something about our individual traits that will help us but society needs to be inclusive and accessible for us to be able to take those traits, ambitions and aspirations and for it to be met on the other side. Can I just say one of the, one of the times when I've been most knocked back in my heels as the Irish Times Women's Podcast, a presenter, and also in my sort of glory of being the feminist that I believe myself to be, Lynn once told me she never heard the word feminist until she was 26. And I suddenly realised... Yeah. how little impact people like me have on communities out there and how important it is to have forums like this where Lynn will come in and tell us, no, you're not getting to us. Mm. We, we don't know what that means. We are feminists, but we don't know what you mean by that word. Yeah, like so, I think yeah. for feminism was something very new to me, but I suppose being a woman and being supported by my family and community succeed as a woman and was very so fem I just didn't have the wording for it but it didn't mean that there wasn't women fighting for us to succeed within our own communities and for gender not to hold us back but I think when you're coming from um, conditions that aren't ideal and poverty and, and deprivation class sometimes is what sometimes is what is your first barrier is so when we look at our male counterparts in working class communities because they have high suicide rates and they're in prison and they're in this that sometimes it's their class identities that we're fighting with force before we can even begin to look at what gender means for us in working class communities mm. you know and I think feminism came to me much later on and I suppose I rebelled a little bit then against middle class feminism because I was like don't claim me when I make it yeah. You know, you weren't there kind of, when I tried to kind get... Kind of scary. You know? <laughs> okay, Izzy. You're 
company, Izzy Wheels, is actually completely wrapped up in your own stories with your sister, Alva. Um, first of all, tell us about your funky wheels today. Do they represent some very deep meaning? So um, today I am wearing um, Tarsilla Schubert wheels um, and she's an artist based in um, Abu Dhabi and I um, literally just picked them because they match my outfit and I like the way they look. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us a little bit, Izzy, about you were born with spina bifida, um, so this is the norm to you, how you feel. And when I approached Izzy initially, um, I sort of said to her, you know, the little sad face on me, you know, gosh, it, you, you must have had some challenges in life. And as I say, tell, tell me what you say when people say that, Izzy. So, um, yeah, the narrative around disability is um, often so, so negative. And, like, that is... Um, a large proportion of people's stories, but for myself and so many, um, like all the people I know with disabilities and who use wheelchairs, it's not our story. And um, yeah, so words such as wheelchair bound, um, confined to a wheelchair, people really believe that they are using the correct terminology and um, you know that they are doing the right thing. But um, it's it like really is not a nice thing for wheelchair users or people with disabilities in general to hear their disability being um, you know just kind of um, dubbed as something negative before we get the chance to speak up about it ourselves. Because um, for me, I have a really positive relationship with my wheelchair and my disability. Like, it's 100% part of who I am. And, you know, um, uh, with the wheels, I was finally able to, um, like, show visually my positive relationship with my wheelchair. And um, as soon as I started doing that, people weren't um, saying things like, oh, um, you poor thing, you're confined to a wheelchair, which was always unintentional. They were saying, I love your wheels, your chair is so cool. That's all I've ever wanted. <laughs> cool wheels is all I ever wanted. The Irish Times Women's Podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition. Sumptuously smooth, dark chocolate. Martin, now I'm old um, and I remember the story of the Kerry babies, Abby Dorney, about 35 years ago. Most of you won't know, know about this story, but I urge you all to Google it. If you wonder about the position of, people, of women in Ireland 35 years ago, or more recently if you like, but also about the, the form it can take, the form misogyny can take. Uh, and also what it must be like to be a person who feels different in that very oppressive environment. Now, Martin Shanahan looks to me like somebody who has always been unchallengeably confident about the fact that he's gay. But Martin was 11 when the Kerry baby story hit Abby Dorney. Um, and I honestly wonder, Martin, without explaining what the Kerry baby, because it's far too complicated, but being born into that environment and realising you were gay back then, was it as shocking as I think it might have been? 
Well, the first thing to say now, Kerry's a lovely place, okay? Yeah, lovely. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, and a great place to grow up, uh, in truth. But, but let's be honest, it was a, it was a different Ireland. I mean, um, you know, we, in Kerry's baby's case was 1984. Uh, I was 11, as you said. In the same year, we had the Anne Lovett case in, um, uh, in Longford, uh, where a young woman gave birth in a, a graveyard. Uh, and that, unfortunately, you know, was a taboo subject at the time, unwed uh, mothers. And um, so that, that was the environment, I guess. Um, you know, I knew from when I was uh, a young age that uh, I was gay. That, um, I, I, I suppose you don't see it as different because uh, this is who you are. Um, I uh, decided when I was 21 years of age that I would come out. Um, uh, I told my dad uh, first. Um, he had a heart attack a week later, which I thought was very inconsiderate oh. of him. Uh, <laughs> he, uh, he, he survived that, that, by the way. He has passed away since, but uh, nothing related to my coming out. Are you sure? Uh, I have, I, I'm pretty sure. Uh, he told me so. Uh, but um, uh, I, 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 my family were extraordinarily uh, supportive. And, um, but, but yeah, I think the, the biggest difficulty for somebody growing up LGBT in 70s and 80s Ireland and uh, 1780s Kerry was that there's no frame of reference. Uh, there's no one to look to to say, okay, this is how you deal with this. Uh, or nobody to look to that has trodden a path that it would be perceived as normal. And, uh, and, and that's the difficulty. Uh, that has changed, I think. Uh, I think it has changed immeasurably. It's changed uh, because of people like you who have stood up and been the exemplar. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I, 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 I think, you know, I, I think you do need exemplars. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not that comfortable with the word exemplar, to be honest with you. Uh, but, well, I'm awarding it. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, I'll, I'll take it for this morning, Cathy. Uh, the, um, but but I, I do think, uh, you know, as you said in your earlier introduction, I, I believe being uh, LGBT should be unremarkable. Uh, I, you know, I, I don't think it... Uh, makes uh, much of a difference other than any other facet of who I am, like the fact I am uh, from Carrier, like the fact I'm a man or whatever. Uh, unfortunately, in order to make it unremarkable, we need to see lots of people in lots of different roles. So whether you are the CEO of a public agency or whether you are a, a prominent sports person or you're somebody prominent in the media, we need people uh, from all walks of life and all backgrounds to be able to see them, and so others can aspire uh, to be them. And um, Now, Martin, can I just stop you there and just say that even in the last few years where we congratulate ourselves endlessly about the same-sex marriage referendum and how we were the first uh, popular referendum in the world to pass it, you actually had a bit of a blowback to comments you made. Yeah, uh, I should say, by the way, as well, in relation to your introduction, uh, I'm entirely apolitical. I want to get that out of the way yeah, first, very, as, yeah. as, as, as a public servant. But uh, yeah, I mean, at the time of the same-sex marriage referendum, I, um, I made some comments to an Irish Times journalist, which oh. went along the lines of that, you know, if we were to pass this referendum, that, uh, you know, uh, the world would see Ireland as open and welcoming, which is what I believed it to be. And if we didn't, that, uh, you know, Ireland wouldn't be perceived as open and welcoming. And, and in truth, I was probably astonished both at the level of attention that got at the time, but also the uh, level of negative feedback. There was lots of, obviously, positive um, support as well. But um, I had some interesting feedback, both public and private. I had some couple of people, a couple of politicians who called for my resignation at the time. Uh, I had uh, some very interesting letters the ones that come in pencil and crayon, you tend to ignore. Uh, 
typeface ones are always interesting. And then there were people who genuinely believed that it was the wrong thing, both what I was saying was wrong and that I was wrong to say it in my position, uh, that came very eloquently argued. And I think it was probably, for me at least, probably the first time that I had a gauge of the level of probably homophobic feeling in Ireland. Because up to that, you know, I'm not saying that my sexual orientation hadn't challenged people up to that in terms of my interaction, but I always believed, listen, this is their problem. You know, if if there's an issue, I am who I am, they're going to have to deal with it. Um, But to, you know, have people writing to you, setting out why they believe this was wrong, uh, was, uh, I suppose... uh, eye-opening to me. Isn't it amazing? I, I, the idea of writing to somebody, having to find an envelope, a piece of paper, a stamp. <laughs> you know, the trouble people go to to be abusive is just... Really? There, there are young people in the audience by the way, asking, writing? What is this? <laughs> this is true. I'm imagining older people because I like to think it's sort of confined to that area, but it's not. Sasha, you actually represent um, many different threads of what we're here about today. Yeah. So... And you, I, I, Martin is talking about the cost of speaking out. Uh, tell us about your own, give us your own story, which is really intersectional. You, know, you, you almost define the word. And she also told me that she regards, she, when she thinks about our life, it's one big question mark of questions coming at you. So tell us a bit about that. Uh, so yeah, so I think my own experience um, has been, like I said, this big question mark um, throughout my life. And I've had to defend myself for every aspect of my being and every aspect of my existence. So my name is Sasha, I'm a spoken word artist, I'm queer, I'm a woman of colour, I'm mixed race, um, and I'm kind of faced with a, a public platform, I guess you could say, where I'm expected to embody every one of those 24-7. I'm expected to be an artivist or an activist in everything that I do. I'm expected to be an activist for the queer community, for... Um, the African community, for the mixed community, for the female community. Um, I grew up at Islam, which I've spoken quite openly about. I'm expected to be an activist for that community as well. And it's just very daunting because I can't be responsible for everybody's experience. And I'm not saying that I'm asked to be responsible, but I think that when you don't have that kind of otherness, when you're not the outsider... It is, you do kind of look to someone who is the outsider to be like, well, speak on behalf of all these people in the room. You know, especially when you're the only queer person in the room, you're all of the queer people. You know, when <laughs> you're the only person of colour in the room. <sighs> I suppose sorry. women. Um, <laughs> that is, that is the mean? burden of women and yeah. I, increasingly maybe of men, all men, not all men, hashtag, um, all women. Lynn. Um, does that ring a bell with you about women having to represent all, yes. what, being a woman in a, in, a, in a man's world, which you have been really in yeah, politics? Well, and I think for me, I've, um, so when the headlines went out about me, it was single mother, extra user, mm. early school leaver, and then it was like all these, and people saying, does that not really bother you? That's not all who you are. And I decided, well, they'll figure that out as they go along, but... I'm going to allow them to assign the labels to me because of the group of single mothers, the group of early school leavers, the group of drug users that will have somebody to identify with briefly in the public eye that's going, I'm not ashamed to be any of these things. And then 
I'll have to work harder than your mediocre political man to actually show how good I am at my job. So I... I Sorry, man. <laughs> you know, so I, I, I allowed the labels, but I knew I had to work really hard to show that I'm not only those labels and that I'm actually really effective at everything that I do and who I am and that I, I'm good at my job and I'm intelligent and I'm smart. So those things I had to prove, the other things I just accepted. Now, Lynn, a new report has come out today, which I think is very relevant given the day that's in it. It's from the UN Development Programme. Mm. And it is actually pretty shocking stuff. It's done over 75 countries. Now, I'm not sure if there's an East or West bias in it. And we're not saying this applies to Ireland necessarily. But, Lynn, you have a few figures there. I have. I'm just getting them up here. So, so it says 80% of the population are biased against women, and that's male and female. Now, that was up to 2014, and, and they took it from two separate studies. So, sorry, I took some of the figures down because I only read it this morning. Um, some of those are quite stark, but it is from a sample from across 75 different countries. But, I mean, Sweden was accounted for in terms of rowing back. So it's looking at some countries that have declined yes. or, or actually gotten worse in their bias where they had made advances. But I think one of the most striking bits in it is that a third of people, both male and female, believe that it's acceptable to beat your wife. You know, whatever about us battling for political That's a third office. of men and women. Now, this is a worldwide thing we have yeah. to emphasise. But that's... And I know there are many people in this audience who are, have come from other parts of the world and well done, we're delighted to see you. Uh, but this represents it's the world. The world, it's global, yeah. yeah. And like, I mean, it, what it says here is that, you know, at this pace, that 67 countries, which makes up 2.1 billion of girls and women, will not achieve any of the key gender equality targets by 2030. And that's quite stark. I mean, that's a lot of women and girls left behind um, wherever they are. And I think it's upon like feminism is it should be borderless you know so where feminism should reach to as many countries as we possibly can so i don't think we can i suppose sit in ourselves and say oh well we're in ireland we've made great advancement that mustn't account for us it's the fact that it counts for women somewhere and and it's upon us to kind of pursue that um, yeah. and to help you know in in every country to advance the plight the plight advance the advance um the situation for women and the environment for women but we're coming to an end. And I we are. At the me. clock is ticking down <laughs> so horribly here. I wanted, to, I wanted to finish on a sonnet, right? She's going to make a, a show of us all, I'm going to tell you. Right? So when, when, when Roisin and Cathy showed me this report, um, I wrote a sonnet a few weeks ago, and the real spoken word poet is beside <laughs> me. So do not judge me. <laughs> and, and don't okay? judge me. <laughs> don't. So it's called Shakespeare's Hell, and the report reminded me of this. And I wrote this in honour of Nell McCafferty, because she told me to stop allowing politicians say, grow a pair because she said that courage and bravery is not, um, it's not in a man's genitals. So <laughs> I apologise in advance to uh, the younger ears in the room before I recite the sonnet, just to finish on International Women's Day in honour of Nell, who, should, who would love this. So it's called Shakespeare's Hell. Have some balls, says the demand for power, ignoring the softness of his stones, as if having some hell is the cower. Nell once hurled at them and their thrones. Where is courage in this shallowed hall placed carefully inside each maiden? Not in the depths of that hallowed ball. Bravery is not a genital laden. Standing for what is right is genderless, so take it back from the man's nutsack. Location is in anyone's fearlessness and share it equally with a woman's rack. 
Weakness associated with a Shakespeare's hell is nothing in comparison to McCafferty Nell. <laughs> now, I'll bet you won't go to another International Women's Day event and hear the words nutsack thrown <laughs> And I'm so genuinely sorry to say that's where we have to end this. I <laughs> genuinely could go on for three hours with these four panellists, but that's all we have time for. And thank you very much for being such an engaged audience. This episode of the Women's Podcast, the Irish Times Women's Podcast, will be uploaded on Sunday, just in time for International Women's Day. And you can find it on irishtimes.com and on all good podcast apps from Spotify to Acast to iTunes. Thank you very much for being such a great audience. And thanks to all our guests, Lynn, Sasha, Martin and Izzy. Thank you. I wish I could have given you lots more time. <laughs> And that's it for today. Thanks to everyone who got out of bed so early to join us at the convention centre. It was a breakfast event and yeah, we were a bit bleary eyed. And to our wonderful panellists, Lynn Ruan, Martin Shanahan, Izzy Keane and Sasha Terfus. Finally, thanks again to Accenture Ireland for putting together such a brilliant event and celebrating International Women's Day 2020 with us. Remember, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Spotify, Acast and all good podcast apps. If you want to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast or email us on thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, and by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Until next time, thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.